Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everyone, welcome to the show today. Um, I'm pretty excited about this because uh, this this was unintentional, but this weekend I had made a joke that my reward for having worked so hard on Sunday on my last episode that I released of One Broken Mom was that I was going to treat myself to a Channing Tatum movie, and I promise there's a relevancy to this, um, and it happened to be G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra. And no, I know it's not one of the most cinematic masterpieces that are out there, but it's a great movie if you're folding laundry and it's a Sunday afternoon and you kind of are only mildly paying attention. And what was funny was that one of the characters, her name is Scarlett O'Hare, and she's a very science-driven person. And that her whole philosophy is that if science can prove it or can't prove it, then it doesn't exist. Now, this movie came out in 2009. And no, I'm not delusional in thinking that Hollywood represents all current thinking, but it does give us a cultural snapshot from time to time of what beliefs there are out there in society. And in 2009, there was a clever Hollywood writer who wrote this line for Scarlett to recite, which is, attraction is an emotion. Emotions are not based on science. And if you can't quantify or prove something exists, then in my mind, it doesn't. And I literally choked on my soup when I heard that. Because we know that so much has changed in the world um, in terms of our understanding about this. And so even back in 2009, we just did not respect or value where emotions play in our world and in our brain development. And that it didn't feel at that point in time, even to some people, that it was even scientific in basis. Now, what made me perk up and get serious about changing myself in the last year was reading the scientific information and the research that was showing emotions are based in science and biology, that they aren't accidental, they aren't the luck of the draw, and that we are governed every day by autopilot functions in our brain, while primitive are yet still completely necessary to us as humans, and that the autopilot settings were established not only by the quantity of experiences, but also the quality of these experiences that we had in our childhood. But the urgency was in seeing that the understanding of brain architecture and the influence of our experiences on the development of our emotions, mental wellness, mental illness, was only recent. And as in, while I was growing up and even starting my own family, what scientists know today was just becoming and being understood. Grasping this one thing, the fact that the science is there, but the fact is that it's not well known or has reached a saturation in our society yet is exactly why I started the podcast and become an advocate for understanding how our negative, traumatic, adverse, neglectful, sometimes abusive, and scary childhood experiences we've all had in one form or another is why we as adults have the health and well-being issues that we have today. And if we don't change or become aware of these, what these experiences are and what the impacts have on our brains, we will keep passing them down from one generation to the next through the misguided parenting of our own kids. And so today, for the first time now, I finally have a neuroscientist on One Broken Mom. Her name is Amelia Bachleda. And she's a PhD and works as the Outreach and Education Specialist at the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, which is also called iLabs, at the University of Washington. And in her role, her job is to translate and deliver accessible information about the latest research in early learning and brain development to anybody that's out there in the community, including parents, childcare providers, educators, podcasters like me, and policymakers. And since joining iLabs in 2015, she's given dozens of public talks and workshops about the neuroscience of the of childhood and brain development. So I want to say welcome to One Broken Mom to Amelia. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Amelia. It's my pleasure. 
So um, let's talk about real quickly um, what has been the differences in the study of brain development over the last 20, 30, and even the last 10 years ago? How much has the, has the world of science in that area changed? You know, it is a really exciting time for neuroscience. I think we now have new tools that allow us to ask questions that we would never have been able to ask before. So for the first time, we can really get a good idea of not only what a child is doing, perhaps from their beha- a behavioral standpoint, um, but what the structure of their brain looks like, and also what's actually going on inside their brain. So we can, for the first time, take a peek at a child's behavior, the structure of their brain, and the activity inside the brain. And that is this trifecta that we really haven't been able to access before. And that's actually one of the pieces of science that we focus on here at the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences. And one of our big areas of study, one of the areas that we're really excited about is um, this idea of brain imaging. So seeing what's, uh, going, what's going on inside of the brain of a child um, in real time. So for example, we have um, a brain imaging machine here called magnetoencephalography, or MEG for short. I'm not sure if you heard of MEG before. I did, Meg. Um, yeah, it seems nice. Nice name, Meg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So it is this um, fantastic tool that allows us to see in real time what's going on inside a child's brain on a millisecond by millisecond basis. And unlike um, an MRI or an fMRI, I don't know if you've experienced um, that type of brain imaging before, it can be really loud and claustrophobic. Um, This particular brain imaging tool is completely silent um, and um, non-invasive harmless, and we're able to see what is going on inside the brain of a child. And this allows us to sort of get at some of those interesting questions that we haven't been able to ask before. You know, I think a big difference um, between um, information that we had 20 years ago and information that we have now is um, for a long time, we really relied on animal models for human behavior. Um, And animal models are um, complex and wonderful, but they're not the same as looking at what is going on in the brain of a child, right? Right. And so we're able to um, add these new pieces and we're able to get at some of these more complex questions. You were speaking about um, emotions or um, there's a recent study that came out of our uh, institute looking at um, what happens in the brain of a child when they're anticipating being um, touched, for example, Hmm. um, which is kind of interesting, right? Or they anticipate touching something else. So that is actually um, something that all of our brains do. We, we anticipate what it's going to feel like when we reach out and touch something. And the authors of this study were able to correlate that, um, how strongly our brains respond to that anticipation of touch, to skills like anticipation and focus, um, which is really important for executive functioning. This sort of interconnectedness of all of these different realms of development that we're able to access for the first time. Wow, that's actually pretty amazing. And, you know, and I've said this before, but again, I'm not the neuroscientist. So when it comes out of my mouth, it can be questioned, right? Um, but, you know, that, that has been one of the explanations. And that was one of the things that, like I said, resonated with me was that, um, you know, back in the, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, you know, there was some technology that was available, but even software made a huge difference. And being able to crunch data, that receiving and seeing all that information is one part of it. But then the other piece of it is actually being able to have the ability to analyze it and model it and run it and then use it as a prediction tool, you know, to be able to say like, okay, now we've got all that we've been able to collect and sort all of this together. Um, and, and then come up with, uh, you know, some theories to test and then finding out that some of those are, you know, are, are, are true. Um, and so do you guys, I'm just curious about this too, because I understand, um, you know, the brain is the brain is working as one thing, but then there's also the brain is signaling hormones through the, through the body. Um, do you, while you're studying children, you know, I don't know if you do this or not, but um, are you also measuring how the, the hormone levels change at the, at the moment you're seeing brain activity? Um, to my knowledge, we have not conducted a study like that here before, um, but I know that other, um, other researchers do, and that is an active area of research, perhaps measuring cortisol, our body's um, stress hormone, um, that might come to mind. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely room. We may explore that more in the future. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I can imagine, you know, first of all, where do you get kids to study? <laughs> where, where do they come from? Um, well, we're really lucky here um, at the University of Washington. There's actually a um, survey that I believe it is parents in King County. It might be statewide. I believe it's King County, though, um, that all um, parents of newborn children are given, and they can sign up if they want to be on a listserv. Um, it says, hey, do you would you be interested in participating at studies um, at the University of Washington or other um, research institutes? Oh, okay. That's cool. And, I was, um, yeah. And so we're able to go in and say, you know, we study development. And so often we want a cohort of, let's say, six week old babies. Um, and so our researchers here can go, um, can make a request to say, I would like to have all the names of all the babies that are going to be six weeks in two weeks. Um, and so that's a really great way that we can um, reach out. And then also word of mouth. Um, we have a lot of siblings that come in of, um, uh, you know, parents, have brought in their first child and then they bring in their second child. Um, so there's a variety of different ways we go about recruiting for our studies. Cool. Well, and I had asked about the blood thing because I'm sure that's a form of childhood trauma. If I volunteered my child for a study and then they got poked every time and had needles and blood drawn and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> so you know, asking, that's fair. Um, so let's, let's right, walk right. everybody through uh, what, how, how does the brain development, what are these distinct phases of brain development in humans now that we can actually look at a human brain and we don't have to make a lot of assumptions about it? Sure. Yeah. One of the things that um, I think is um, really fascinating is just how much the brain develops in the first few years of life. Um, So, for example, when we're born, our brains are about 25% of their adult size, which is already pretty big, right? None of the rest of us is 25% of our adult size. Um, You can imagine, you know, trying to, you know, birth a child who's one quarter of their adult height or weight. You know, that's that's a pretty large baby, right? So our brains are already quite large, (laughs) (laughs) and they're actually limited by the size of what is um, physically able to get through the birthing canal, right? So large brains already. But then um, by the time a child is five, the brain actually grows to about 90% of its adult size, which is this tremendous amount of growth that happens in that first year of life. Um, And I always like to caveat this a little bit too. So anyone who spent any time with children um, probably knows 95% of uh, the brain's adult size does not mean 95% done or 95% developed, right? We know that five-year-olds are not 95% done with all of their development. Right. But it's like they have all of the, yeah, they have all of the raw materials there, right? And there's something really interesting that happens in this early phase in brain development. So when we're born, we have almost all of the neurons or brain cells that we'll ever have. Um, And neurons are the cells in our brain that um, form this complex communication network that goes throughout our brain and throughout our body. So we're born with most of the brain cells, but they're not all connected or wired together. And that is a really fascinating part of brain development because The connections between neurons, that is how those neurons share information. And every time we learn something new, we either make a new connection between the cells in our brain or we make a connection stronger. And that's actually a physical connection between neurons um, that are called synapses. So I'll use connections or synapses interchangeably. And so we're born with the cells, but we're not born with all of the connections. And that's really important. And that's great because we have so much to learn when we're born, right? We have to learn about um, how to walk, how to talk, what foods we like, who we are, what our community is, our identities, all of those things we have to learn. Um, And so there's this tremendous potential for learning that's happening in this period where there's so much brain growth. And one estimate is, is that between the ages of zero and three, young children are making one million new synaptic connections each second. That is just an incredible amount of um, connectivity and brain growth that's happening in those early periods. And sort of reflecting back to the question you asked earlier, that's one of those new pieces. What's that new research is just how important these early years are in setting the foundational architecture and structure of the brain. And to a certain extent, which connections form is going to be based on the experiences that we have as children. 
So the more often we have an experience, whether that experience is a positive experience or whether that experience is a negative experience, the more likely we're going to be to form those connections between the cells in our brain. And if you zoom out, that sort of becomes, you can see that becoming um, patterns of behavior, of response that are based on those early connections that we're forming. Hmm. Yeah. And brain and, architecture. I, I like brain. I'm sorry. I like brain architecture. You know, I've, you've mentioned I've seen it. Um, and so I, and I, I'm going to let you continue here. Um, you know, for people out there that think much more concretely, you know, around architecture, let's just say, so what you're saying is that by five years old, 95% of the house is built. The walls are up, the floors in, the ceilings are in, and all the light switches are in and the light fixtures are in based on whatever the DNA was that we have that, that built all that. But the copper wiring between all of them is not quite put in. And that's where the experiences start to put the copper wiring in and which lights will come on when a certain switch is. I mean, is that a simplified kind of way of describing a connection in the synapsis between it that's going on in the brain? Yeah, I think that's a really great way to think about it. And, you know, I might even um, go to the extent of we're not quite sure which lights need to come on yet, you know, right? Because maybe we're not sure how we're going to use that house. Um, and so we might not know where, what areas need, need more light, which areas need less light. When do those lights need to come on and off? Um, and so you can add that little piece to that analogy, mm -hmm. but I like that, the idea of wiring, or um, sometimes we think of neurons as um, telephone poles and the connections are those wires between them. Right, right. So that's a really good analogy. Well, and I just, yeah. and I, I wanted to just step in there because I know there is this assumption that what you're born with, you know, the brain that came out is all set, ready to go, that it's just really the gray matter is growing as we grow. And, um, and so then if there's mental illness or mental wellness issues and stuff, that just happened to be the way you were born. And I think that that kind of lends into the stigmas that people feel or the insecurities they feel about, you know, um, some of the, the mental wellness issues that they have here. And so, um, and, and so that's why I just want to make sure that what we're talking about is that that's not actually the right assumption, that that's what you guys are, you know, you as in this community of neurobiologists are finding is that that's not the case at all. Um, okay. So I, I stepped in on you and interrupted you, um, continue with what you were going to say before I was being so rude. <laughs> No, not at all. I think those are like fabulous questions and um, clarifications. And I love that you brought that up. Yes, this we are not fixed, right? There are certain pieces that, um, you know, it's like we have all of the raw materials or we have the ingredients, right? Let's say um, sometimes we use the example of um, um, following a recipe, right? So um, you can use, let's say you're going to make um, chocolate chip cookies. You could also make chocolate chip pancakes with those same ingredients, just in a slightly different combination, cooked a different way with a different method, right? So we have all these raw ingredients, those are the neurons and the cells, but how we connect to those, um, how we make those connections, how we set this sort of um, micro architecture of the brain, that is really dependent on the experiences that we have when we're young. However, that's not to say that once we're done with this phase that that's fixed, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there's these other interesting periods of development where we have um, these particular sort of, um, I like to call them um, blooming and pruning periods in the brain. Have you heard of um, neural pruning before? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, we actually make so many connections in our brain so quickly. That's sort of one million new connections per second. It's sort of a mind-boggling amount that we make too many connections. Um, and so in order to have a brain that is efficient um, and works more like an adult brain where we're really able to focus in on um, what we're working on, that we're experts in particular areas, we have to prune away or cut away some of those connections that we've made. And um, this is a very natural and important process. There's this big period that happens in early childhood when the experiences that we have the most often, those are sort of shaping which connections we're going to keep. And the ones that we don't need, those are going to get pruned away. And there's another period where this happens. Um, so this sort of um, blooming and pruning period that happens in early childhood. Um, can you guess when another period in um, child development that this might be happening in the brain? Uh, I'm guessing around adolescence. 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's another period where our, you know, that, and if you, and I think it's kind of helpful if you look at teenagers with this um, perspective of, oh, there's a lot going on in their brain. They are rewiring parts of their brain. Their brain is going through this process of trying to figure out what's important. What do I need? What are my skills? Um, and um, it's a complex process. Um, so there's, those are two really important periods in child development because you're sort of reworking um, this, this architecture in our brain. Cool. So I have to ask this question um, because it's, uh, it, I think there's cultural biases and, you know, like I mentioned before we started the, the episode officially, you know, and people that know me and know um, and have listened to One Broken Mom know that men's mental health as a specific category is something that's, you know, extremely important to me. Um, and, you know, the main reason being because I have a son. And so I have to ask this question because I have you on the show here. Are there differences between boys and girls and their brains? That is a very common question. And I think something that people think about a lot. And the answer is that there isn't a lot um, that neurobiologists have found of real distinct, discrete differences in um, the brains of boys and the brains of girls. There may be a few, um, you know, sort of um, little differences here and there, but nothing that is so easy to point out to say, uh, obviously, there's a change here and this means this, you know. I think um, the field has sort of come to this idea that our, as we were talking about earlier, our earliest experiences really shape who we are. And in our society, in many societies, there are these really strong cultural roles that we've set up for boys and girls. There are, we learn from what, um, we learn from what we see, we learn from what we do, we learn from our expectations. Um, so you can think about what are boys asked to do? How are boys asked to deal with their emotions, for example, right? It's sort of this common, um, there's this common notion out there that um, boys don't cry, that they have to be tough. And the flip side of that is that girls um, are expected to um, have these larger social networks and gossip and, um, you know, sort of network with their friends and talk about their feelings. Where is the room that we've allowed for um, girls to sort of explore this emotional realm and boys not to, and perhaps conversely to push them towards something else? Like maybe we think about um, um, math amplitude, for example. That's actually an area of study at iLabs. We um, look at um, the differences between um, boys and girls and how they think about math, which is mm. a little bit different than your question, but it's related, right? Because it's mm -hmm. part of this, what is the culture that we're steeped in? And um, researchers here have come up with this test where they can um, measure children's implicit biases. So the um, things that they, the beliefs that they have, the ideas that they have about the world that they might not even know that they have. Um, and we all have implicit biases. Um, and there are about many different topics. You can think about race, gender, um, just across the map. And so we've looked particularly at um, math. And what they found is that um, there's this distinct progression that we see that, um, you know, around preschool, boys and girls um, are able to tell that they are a boy or a girl. They're often identifying as um, a boy or a girl. Um, though we know that gender is non-binary, um, but for the purposes of this study, they were looking right. at boys and girls. So that is, you know, the pro predominant, you know, um, identifying as a boy or girl. Um, and then around um, six or seven, um, both boys and girls start to report um, through these implicit measures that um, boys do math that math is for boys, even at this really young age. And then just a year later, girls start saying, I don't do math because I'm a girl. Math is for boys. That means that I must not do math. And this happens at a really young age. Um, and it can be disheartening, right? Because it's so early, but it's these kind of things that we have to be aware of. What are the messages that we're um, telling our children and if you think about math, for example, maybe mom um, is writing a check at a restaurant and saying, oh, my gosh, I have such a hard time with tips. I'm so bad at math. You know, mm -hmm. that's like that's one of those little messages that can just fly out of our mouth from a really young age and start setting the tone of who does and who doesn't do math. Yeah, and that's, that's a really discreet piece. Right. Um, and if we think about emotions or mental health or any of these things, it, it blossoms from there. 
Right, right. Um, I, I happen to have an engineering degree, so somewhere along the lines, nobody told me I couldn't do math. So I'm grateful for that piece of it. Um, but you know, one of the one of the things I do remember growing up with, and I do hear people saying, and um, uh, you know, I'm in my 40s, and so uh, that that'll kind of give you, you know, I'm an 80s kid, grew up then. I'm a Gen Xer. Mm-hmm. And we've heard and we were led to believe that girls are more mature at a younger age, um, you know, and, uh, and will grasp things faster than boys. And, um, and, and we, I think we still even see that, or we think we see that reflected back to us and children today is, have you seen through the studies, any sort of, um, developmental delay between the, the, the boys and the girls in terms of certain areas? Or do you think that that's also more culturally influenced rather than, uh, rooted in something that you've seen through expressed through science and in the neurobiology? I haven't seen any particular studies. That's not to say that they don't exist, but I think there too, there's probably, even if there is a difference in, um, different developmental, you know, trajectories that there's probably a really strong um, societal and cultural component there. If we're looking, if we're expecting, you know, children, adults, anybody in our lives um, sort of rise to the expectations we have for them, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're setting this expectation that, um, you know, this child may not um, develop to this certain point, um, you know, we're sort of creating this boundary for that child. Now, I don't think there's a lot of studies to sort of support that necessarily either. So it's a little bit of a gray area, but I think it's an area of um, active research. And again, just coming back to this idea of um, what is the environment that we set up for and thinking about all of those different components of the environment, not only, you know, how parents might interact with children, but teachers, what kids see on TV, what they hear. Um, There's this you know, whole spectrum of um, influences in a child's life. Right, right. Now, are there um, more people or children out there that uh, are more sensitive to others, meaning that you have two subjects sitting there, two kids, uh, they're seeing and witnessing and experiencing the exact same thing, but one of them maybe renders it differently and in a, at a more sensitive level, maybe is affected by it more. Um, is, is that something that you've seen that may actually be one of those out of the box, you know, uh, settings, uh, like a genetic thing, or is there, uh, or is that something that might still also be um, uh, experience based? And I ask that because of me reflecting back on my own, my own self and my own development and experiences in life. And I, even today as an adult, I feel sometimes, um, the kind of more, I want to say empathetic, but I think empathetic is the great way of saying it, of being able to kind of, I feel like I feel more emotional experiences maybe than somebody else does. And I don't think that's necessarily good or bad, but I'm just curious because I've, I've heard from that some people are sensitive quote unquote, you know, to their environment in different ways. And therefore those experiences that may seem inconsequential to the next kid sitting next to them can actually affect them differently. Have you, have you guys touched on that, seen it, studied it, have any thoughts on that? We haven't done too much work specifically looking at that topic, but I think it brings up a really nice um, point of this idea of nature versus nurture, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is kind of what we've been talking about anyways. And um, the idea that it's really a combination of both, right? We are both the combination of our genes um, and also the um, environment in which we're raised. And so I think to a certain extent, you know, we can help children um, learn to be more emotionally sensitive, more in tune with their own emotions, give them those sort of tools that allow them to really empathize with others. And on the flip side of it, there are um, definitely genetic factors that influence our personalities. And so I think that that's a real combination, right? I think you can trend one way or another. Um, personality is sort of this, you know, a spectrum, right? You can kind of trend one way or another, and then our life experiences can continue to push us in one direction mm-hmm. or another. Um, and I'll bring in sort of another example. If you think about um, children who are um, diagnosed with autism, right? This is a um, uh, condition where um, the sort of leading thought is that um, there's this sensory overload in the brain. So the sensory in a little bit of a different way than you were talking about, but Mm -hmm. similar, right? So they have many children with autism um, have sort of heightened sensitivity to um, 
the physical sensations in the world. Maybe it's colors or sound or touch. And um, autism, again, is a spectrum, and there's a wide variety of how um, children with autism experience the world. Um, but there is this sort of genetic heightened um, predisposition, the ideas that there perhaps are actually too many connections mm -hmm. um, in the brain, that perhaps the pruning didn't happen to the same extent that um, it might have happened in another child. And so that's sort of um, a little bit of an argument for the genetic sides of things. But then again, you know, how is that child raised? What environment are they in? What skills are they being taught? How are they learning to, um, you know, exist in um, this world? So kind of an interesting combination of both. Yeah, that is an interesting, you know, I, uh, and it kind of says that when you, by looking at autism in particular there, um, you can't necessarily rule out the possibility because it, it, it is expressed, you know, if you can say that in autism that some of those sensory elements are affected and that that may be the cause for it, then that means that without the evidence that it doesn't exist, that it's possible that, you know, as science progresses and as the ability to be able to look and study these things, you know, anything's possible. That's kind of the attitude that I maintain. I don't, I don't have the whole thing that science has to absolutely prove it. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't exist. I kind of figure like it all exists until science doesn't prove it, you know? Um, it's like, everything's got to be possible there. So otherwise you'll just quit looking for, you know, new answers and stuff. Um, so, yeah, and you know, the science, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go on. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and the science evolves too, right? Like our understanding of, um, we may have thought we've figured it out and then there's new evidence that comes online and then we have to rethink our entire assumptions about how the brain works or how this particular, um, you know, medicine works within the body or whatever it is. Um, and so I think to say, oh, we're done, we don't need to revisit that um, is, um, you know, is really selling ourselves short too, right? So we there's there's always room for possibility. And even if a scientific study says this is probably what's happening, you know, there's always room to sort of refine that and question that and push it further so that we know even better what's going on. Right, right. And that actually this this is segueing pretty nicely into um this next question that I had that I wanted to talk about. Um because you know when I when I describe the the field of psychology and uh and childhood trauma and stuff like that, again, I'm not the I'm not the expert, I just bring them on and learn from them. Um but you know, psychology prior to all of this neurobiology and research that is new, you know, it was really fascinating in an awful lot of theoretical approaches and that there's a, you know, a, his, a history over the last hundred plus years that psychology kind of became like a real field of study of competing theories on what's being, you know, what's this cause and what, why do we feel this way and why does this happen? And, you know, is it our mothers? Is it our not our mothers or whatever? Um, and what neurobiology is, is beginning to do is, um, you know, you actually have things that in the world of physics, we go from theory to basically laws um, where there is the law of gravity, <laughs> you know, that thing that we know right. actually exists right. with, with complete certainty. And in psychology, there were never really any laws of anything, but now neurobiology is starting to, I think, you know, and I couldn't tell you what any of the laws are, but I, I think you're starting to find that there are certainties now in brain development, whereas before we had to rely on, speculation and stuff like that. Um, one of the theories that's still very strong out there and um, which was uh, developed in the 1930s by John Balby, which is the, uh, in psychology, and it's called the attachment theory, which is that um, the theory is, is that a strong emotional and physical attachment to at least one primary caregiver is critical to a person's development in their um, in that that uh, those early stages, like you talked about, those very early years of this brain development stage. Um, have you seen anything in neuroscience that supports this? Because I've I've read some researchers, you know, from the psychology end of it, like the Minnesota longitudinal study, which was a thirty-year study from like three months before birth to like thirty years old, and it's pretty astounding that they've been able to kind of validate it in that way. But how about neuroscience and neurobiology? Anything that you guys have seen or um, witnessed that may also kind of support this theory? Yeah, you know, I think that is one of the areas where these sort of new tools that we have um, are going to be able to let us um, get into that question even better. Like what is going on in the brain of a child um, 
or what are the differences in um, structure or architecture of the brain. Um, and I think that that is, um, you know, a really uh, emerging field. Um, so there's been some famous studies um, looking at um, children who were raised in Romanian orphanages. Are you familiar with these studies at all? Certainly not yeah. something we did here at iLabs. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Um, and so... And so this is looking a little bit more at, um, you know, the flip side of what happens when these children in these orphanages were um, experienced severe neglect. Um, you know, they were left um, in cribs and only, you know, picked up very infrequently, um, had very little parental care. And so they've been able to follow some of the children um, that grew up in these orphanages and to see what's happened um, in their adult lives. And they're able to see there are some some differences in the brain and certainly differences in um, their response to stress, um, different issues throughout their lives. Um, so, you know, prior to that, that's been sort of the major study of looking at the flip side of that, of like what happens when there's real severe, extremely severe neglect that goes on. Um, but this idea of looking at what exactly is happening during um, perhaps a secure attachment um, where there's this nice interaction between um, parent and child. Um, you know, the child is able to, um, there's this um, classic study looking at um, attachment, which is the strange situation. Have you heard of the strange situation Yeah, the before? stranger. Yeah, the yeah. strangers. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's this there's this study where um, there's many many rounds of this, but essentially, um, uh, parent and child are playing in a room, um, and then the parent leaves, and then a researcher watches to see what happens. Um, what does the child do um, when they're left in the room? Um, what happens when a stranger walks into the room and leaves? And then what happens when um, the parent comes back? Um, and in the secure attachment, the child who might have been a little bit alarmed um, when the parent leaves or the stranger comes in, they will um, seek attention from their parent, um, calm themselves down, and then go back to playing. Um, and so, you know, this has been around for quite a long period of time, and I think there is sort of the tools to look at what what's going on from a neurobiological basis there. Um, this is a long way of answering your question to say I'm not I'm not sure of those specific neurobiological mechanisms, um, but I think this this overlay of the many different techniques of looking at hormones, of looking at brain development, of looking at brain function will um, give us some of those answers in the next few years. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, you know, I have a lot of guests on the show that are mostly psychologists and, and authors and, um, and whatnot. And, you know, many of them have used the, the phraseology that we are wired to connect when we're children, um, that our, our baseline function is that we seek a connection, this emotional connection to someone, caregivers, um, family members and things like that, which then can be the kind of the, you know, it's a good thing. Um, but then it also is why, you know, traumatic experiences can be even more so. Um, what does that actually mean, this wired to connect? Is there a, is there a neurobiological definition of, of how that looks? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, again, the neurobiology of this is sort of, we're sort of in the in-between realm of um, psychology and neurobiology and how, does, how do those two fields interface and connect and understand and how do you build on the knowledge of one field with the knowledge of the other but, you know, it, it's true. Children are born wanting to have this um, social interaction. Um, and um, one of the um, earliest studies of one of the co-directors of our um, research uh, lab, um, Dr. Andrew Meltzoff, did this study. It was back in the 70s. And he, um, what he did is he basically went to hospitals and with parents' permission made faces at newborn babies. Um, so he went in and he stuck his tongue out. He opened his mouth. He pursed his lips. He made these faces that um, newborn babies um, can um, physically make. And sure enough, many babies, not all babies, but many babies within hours of birth made those facial expressions right back at him. Um, yeah. And this is one of the studies that really shifted, started to shift the field of um, developmental psychology of saying, oh, children are born wanting to be a part of a conversation, right? This is long before that they know what a tongue is or a mouth or who you are, but they really are born ready like biologically ready to start having that back and forth interaction that we know is so fundamentally important 
for child development. Um, and so to a certain extent, that suggests that the biology is there, right? Um, so somehow in our brains, the children are able to understand that um, you have a tongue and I have a tongue and I wanna connect with you and so I'm gonna do the same thing that you're doing. And in fact, we're using some of those um, new tools, the um, magnetoencephalography um, or MEG to look at this. So we're able to put um, newborn infants into these machines. And um, this is another um, experiment that's sort of based around touch. And we're able to see that um, when babies watch um, another, a video of another person's hand being touched or a foot being touched, similar regions in their own brain light up, regions that respond to their own hand and their own foot. Um, and these are very young babies. And so you can see from a very young age, babies are born with the neurobiological structures to be able to recognize um, their own hand and somebody else's hand and that those are related. Um, and this is one of the very first studies to look at that kind of relatedness um, and neurobiological function. Um, but it, you can see it sort of setting the stage for understanding better. Well, what, what does that really mean wired to connect? Um, what, what is wired? What is there? Um, and that's just one tiny, tiny little piece of um, our experience. But um, touch is really powerful. It's one of the first ways we um, communicate and connect. And that um, neurobiological network is set up and then um, you know, it'll be fascinating to see how that develops and how that sort of integrates into a sense of self. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you had talked to earlier, you know, about those distinct phases of brain development and that, you know, the synapses have to be formed, then, I mean, it, it's intuitive that the only way you get those experiences is there's got to be some activity. So you, um, you know, are subconsciously, I guess, reaching for that activity, that, that connection. Like I need to, as an infant, not thinking about it, but I need to be responsive to my environment because if I don't, then I'm not giving the signals back that are going to be forming, you know, the, the synapses, um, and things. And so that, you know, that, that makes complete sense. Um, so absolutely. because a piece, you know, a big part of the of the show, and at least, I mean, you know, we all have our purpose in life, and one of mine, you know, that I feel I bestowed it upon myself, um, is to help, uh, you know, engage this discussion. You know, you've talked a lot about how, you know, this is about our brains forming, and they're based on the experiences that we have. And, you know, many adults, I, I you know, I'm one of them included, um, that uh, have been in the process of undoing and, you know, repruning again, um, the, you know, some of the experiences that I had that had negative impacts and consequences on, you know, my own brain development in terms of emotional responses and emotional regulation and things like that. Um, and so those are called childhood trauma. They're childhood trauma experiences. And they don't mean in the case of the brain, they don't mean you were hit up over the head or, you know, it, you know, beaten or anything like that. I mean, they can be. Um, but how do neuroscientists, do you guys define trauma and this concept of traumatic experiences and traumatic or adverse childhood experiences differently than psychologists do? I think that this is um, an area where um, there, there is a lot of um, uh, intersection. Um, and so I think both psychologists and neuroscientists um, and physicians think about trauma in a similar way, particularly recently as we have more and more information um, thinking about what are the effects of, um, what are the, uh, you know, sort of downstream effects of that trauma. And I think from a neuroscience perspective and perhaps a medical perspective, um, we focus a lot on what are the um, physical effects, what are the psychological effects, and then we'll look at um, the, what's actually happening in the biology. So um, is there an elevated stress response or does our stress response system, has that been changed somehow? Um, there's a very famous ACEs study looking at adverse childhood experiences. Um, and there are um, distinct and measurable health outcomes um, for uh, um, children who have experienced childhood trauma. Um, there's increased rate of um, heart disease and diabetes and depression. Um, so there's these sort of real uh, measurable health outcomes. And I think that is where often neurobiologists and doctors sort of land when we, we're thinking about trauma is um, the um, physical outcomes. But of course, that intersects with um, 
psychology as well. So um, interconnected, but perhaps um, with a shift towards looking at um, what's, what are those um, physical biomarkers of trauma. And I think that that is an area that is uh, people are really excited about, an active area of research. How can we um, you know, look for some of those biomarkers, um, biological indicators of trauma, and then how can we work um, to help treat those? And that is going to be a combination of, um, you know, looking at both um, medicine and psychology together. Right. Now, you had said earlier that when the when we're talking about, you know, those connections being formed, that our experiences can form new ones or strengthen um, connections. Um, and, and in the field and, and looking at trauma, um, a traumatic experience can weaken a connection. Is that true? I think um, it it could. I think um, it it depends on it depends on the trauma. You know, I think um, similarly to when you think about like a child with autism, everyone has their own particular traumas, and that experience of trauma is unique to that one particular person. So what may have ex- happened for one person may be very different for another person, right? So if we think about maybe the memory of that experience for one person is incredibly strong and they will never forget it. Maybe for another person, they have um, sort of have a block on that and don't remember that experience, but there are other traces of it. Um, I think uh, traumas can um, really affect our bodies and our brains and that can show up in many different ways and in many different forms. And that can be part of the um, challenge of working with people who have experienced trauma. And in fact, that's a really active field um, in child development now and um, early learning and care is thinking about trauma-informed care for little ones. Um, So children um, who have experienced trauma, how do they show up in classrooms? What are the signs? And then how can we create environments to support them and help them? And sometimes um, children who have experienced trauma, um, they might be really quiet um, and sitting, um, you know, quietly reading a book in the back of the classroom. And so a teacher might not think, oh, maybe perhaps that child has experienced trauma, or they might be really loud and um, sort of seen as a troublemaker. um, And the teacher may not know that they've experienced trauma and might not respond to that sort of troublemaking behavior in a way that um, is going to help that child feel safe and protected. So the brain, let's actually, we, we kind of jumped into all this really awesome stuff. Um, but you know, let's, for, for people out there that don't know how the brain is actually like what the parts of the brain are and what the main functions of the brain are. Can you kind of walk through, um, because I've heard the brain is like a three part animal, um, you know, in terms of the prefrontal cortex and, you know, people call it the monkey brain and the scientist brain or, or whatever it is, but can you, can you break down like how the brain actually, what are the different parts of the brain and how they all kind of work together? Sure. Yeah. So um, there is this sort of um, popular idea of these three different parts of the brain. Um, what we think about um, the brain stem, um, so that is um, part of our brain that um, keeps us alive, basically. So breathing, heart rate, those sort of essential functions. Um, and then you sort of have um, midbrain regions that um, are a lot of there are just a lot of different tiny pieces of the brain, um, uh, parts of the brain that are important for um, um, forming memories or um, uh, are regulating our hunger or our different drives. Those kind of those kind of pieces, um, and then there is um, the cortex, which is the part of the brain that uh, you see if you were to you know, take out a brain and look at it, you would see the, the cortex, that sort of deeply um, wrinkled part on the top. And I think there is some, there are different functions in these different regions of the brain. Um, but for me, how I like to approach it is to think about all of the interconnections between those pieces. So one piece cannot really exist without the other. And there are all of these interconnections between the different regions of the brain. The prefrontal um, cortex, which is the very front part of the brain, um, we talk about this a lot. That is a region that is really important for um, the suite of skills called executive functioning skills. Um, So that is being able to pay attention and focus, um, control our um, impulses, short-term memory, um, 
thinking flexibly. So those sort of skills are sort of um, related to this front part of the brain. Um, but at the same time, they're networked with all of these different regions of the brain. Um, we can have experiences when, um, you know, we're really startled or afraid or anxious where um, perhaps we're not thinking as clearly. So we might not be um, as able to focus on a task, right? So that, that part of the brain might not be as active and we might be um, sort of using some of those other regions of our brain. However, um, it's not like, a, like an on and off switch. It's not quite um, as segmented as I think sometimes um, it's made out to be. It's all interconnected, but um, it is important to think about um, there are distinct regions and then they're all working together um, and where and how are we processing those different thoughts. Okay. Now that kind of helps lead us into um, the, the term neuroplasticity, which is, you know, to me, that's the, it's the word that I always hang hope on. And you had mentioned this earlier there that, you know, our brain isn't a fixed state. It's always changing and moving. So um, explain what neuroplasticity means. Yeah, so neuroplasticity is this idea that um, we are able throughout our lives to change how the neurons in our brain connect. So this is one of those sort of new pieces um, that neuroscience um, is really excited about and different is a difference from how we first understood the brain. You know, we um, for a long time we thought that um, you know we had all the brain cells we're ever going to have, if we lose one, they're not going to come back. And what you have is what you get. And we're totally fixed after a certain point in development. Um, but that is really not the case. So neuroplasticity is the idea that we can change how the connections in our brain are connected. When you think about these periods, I was talking earlier about, um, you know, blooming and pruning in the brain. Um, those are periods where there is a lot of neuroplasticity, where we're rapidly changing um, which cells are connecting and how strong those connections are. And those are the periods when um, we are most sensitive to learning from our environment. So that's what we would call a sensitive period. because There's a lot of neuroplasticity happening. However, that doesn't mean that we can't learn something new um, at a different point in our life. Think about language learning, for example. So children are amazing at learning languages. It um, almost appears effortless. They can learn one language, two languages, three languages. They're incredible at learning language. That's sort of the sensitive period for them to learn a new language. Um, but learning a new language as an adult is more difficult, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a second language or a third language as an adult, but it's more challenging. Yeah, it is. So um, learning how and to this play is the in piano. part because, <laughs> Sorry. yeah, yeah, anything like that. That's in part because, no, no, that's great. That's a great example. That's in part because our brain isn't quite as open to those experiences. However, we can still learn how to play a piano as an adult. We can still learn a second language as an adult. It's probably going to take us longer. We're probably going to have to repeat those experiences more in order to tell our brains to shift those connections or to form new connections. But we can always learn something new. And I think that that, that is a really good thing to remember because it can be a little disheartening, right? That first time you sit down or the second time or the, you know, hundredth time you sit down at the piano and you're like, oh man, I like, <laughs> why isn't this coming to me? It's like, well, you're rewiring your brain. It takes a little bit longer, but you can do it. Um, so I think that that's kind of a fun thing to keep in mind. Oh, I'm actually rewiring how my brain works and I can do that at any age for any skill. Yeah. And, and the reason why I, and I thank you for defining that because, and I bring it up because in the, in the world of psychology and a therapeutic process where if, you know, your traumatic experiences have formed synapses and uh, that you're using, you know, that are creating an autopilot, so to speak, because there is an autopilot function to how we operate, you know, that those experiences, uh, you know, uh, 
put together, you know, with the world, how the brain views the world and what the world, you know, and it's shaping you for your world as you move on, even if that's not the same, you know, conditions that you're going to grow up and, and define it. And sometimes those are in conflict. You get to be adulthood and you're just like, why, why do these things still scare me? Why do I feel anxious? Why do I feel, you know, um, all of these things that may have been symptomatic of those, um, the culmination of the experiences, and, you know, and, and trauma, not everybody has the same levels of trauma and some are more traumatic than others and and what they are it varies but going knowing that that the brain is not a fixed state that you can actually work and it may be hard and in some cases i imagine there's some impossibilities in there there's some things that you can't do but that is the that is the benefit of understanding you know where it is that you are psychologically and to know that there there is possibility and like i said that's my it's my word of hope you know that through a through a rigorous psychological therapeutic process, maybe even some self-help if you can do it, you can actually start to kind of prune and weed out some of the stuff, um, you know, that uh, got connected together, maybe improperly, maybe the light switch over in that corner, you needed it to come on, you know, um, and that light does need to work over there in the house. And now you can actually find a way to, to make that happen. Yeah. And you know, one of the ways that I like to talk about um, trauma too, um, is to think about um, in some ways, you know, as humans, we are born to survive and hopefully thrive in whatever environment we're born into. And some of us have experiences that are traumatic. And so our little brains um, made the connections that were important for us to survive in that environment, right? Um, these patterns of behavior, those were, that was our brain trying to protect us, trying to help us survive and thrive. And so that can also be another way to think about it um, when you're thinking about trauma is that, you know, it's not necessarily that it is the wrong connection. That was the right connections for that time, right? That might have helped a child survive a really challenging situation. Um, But those might be the very same connections that make it more difficult, as you were talking about, um, to um, survive and thrive as an adult, right? And then they become no longer the right connections for us, right? So yes, neuroplasticity can allow us to rechange, retool those patterns of behavior. It's going to be hard. Um, we have to do it over and over and over and over again, but for sure that potential is there. Awesome. And that's a great clarification, Amelia. I appreciate you you, you doing that. So um, yes, you're right. What was ha- How we were surviving as childhood definitely was the right thing at the right time for us to be able to get through that. So I, I appreciate that explanation. Um, so let's talk about iLabs and the uh, research that you guys are working on at the University of Washington around this area. Yeah. So um, the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, um, we're a research institute at the University of Washington, um, and we study early childhood learning and brain development. Um, we're co-directed by Dr. Andrew Meltzoff and Patricia Kuhl, and um, they have really dedicated their lives um, and their work to understanding um, how children develop and what's going on in their brain. And they have been at this for many, many years. And, um, you know, I've looked at children's um, behavior, the structure of their brain, the function of their brain. Um, And we focus on uh, children ages zero to five, um, but that is expanding. Um, So we really focus on these early period of development and thinking about how is the brain being set up to um, have children um, thrive in the world. And so my role here, I'm part of the outreach and education team. Um, And we're a team of, um, uh, we're all trained scientists. And our whole job is to take the science um, of child development and put it into the hands of people that can use it. Um, People who are um, working with children, people who um, uh, are thinking about policy issues, um, people who have podcasts, people who are um, once children themselves, getting this information <laughs> out to folks um, that um, that can use us to make a difference in the lives of children. And we do this through a variety of different ways, talks and workshops. Um, we have a whole series of um, free online training modules um, that you can find at um, our website where um, if you're interested in a particular topic um, in early childhood development, we mentioned attachment, for example, we have a few different modules that you can learn a little bit more about the science behind attachment 
or learning more than one language or um, music or talking to your kids about race. We have all of these free training modules. That's one of the things that we do. Um, so if folks want to check those out, they're welcome to. Cool. That's awesome. Well, Amelia, this has been amazing. I really appreciate, like I said, you being able to take the time to talk with me about this. Um, I think it is important because there is an intersection now in our time of psychology and the neurobiology that, you know, Scarlett O'Hare back in 2009 and, and G.I. Joe was wrong, <laughs> um, that, that emotions have connected. We can, we can talk about this thing, that there are, this, um, there are these genuine connections out there, and it's emerging in new. Um, and I, I noticed yeah. that, you know, when I was looking through iLabs, uh, you know, the urgency, there is almost an urgent nature, right, in terms of research, because mm-hmm. the more you find out and the more you start scratching away, the more you realize what we don't know and how important it is to probably figure it out. Um, so I, I value the work that you guys do um, there at the University of Washington in your organization. I thank you so much for the time that you took to be able to come out here and talk with me and um, hopefully educate some other people um, on, the, on, the, on the realm of neuroscience and neurobiology. And, um, and so I'm grateful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. It's been great to talk with you today. Cool. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com, and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.